X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, September 23rd. Today, back in the day, Ralph Bunch became the first African-American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Bunch is a political scientist and diplomat. He won the Peace Prize for his mediation work in Israel. Specifically, he negotiated a ceasefire between Israel and Egypt during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, a.k.a. the Six-Day War. He was also involved in the formation of the United Nations, played a major role in many related peacekeeping missions. There, he helped negotiate another ceasefire during the 1965 Indo-Pakistani War. In America, Bunch was a vocal and active supporter of the civil rights movement, participating in many major demonstrations, including the March on Washington and the Selma Marches. And today, back in the day, September 23, 1957, the Little Rock Nine finally attended class. May 17, 1954, Brown v. Board of Education ruled that segregation in schools was unconstitutional. A lot of southern states dragged their feet when it came to actually integrating their schools, and much of the private school movement was born then, as was the public choice philosophy to justify privatization. And in 1957, the NAACP hatched a plan to integrate Arkansas schools, beginning with a group of students who would be known as the Little Rock Nine. Things did not go smoothly for those nine. Two pro-segregation groups, the Capital Citizens Council and the Mothers League, they didn't call themselves the racist moms and dads. Two pro-segregation groups, the Capital Citizens Council and the Mothers League, organized to keep the new students out. The governor deployed the Arkansas National Guard to keep those nine students from going to class that first month. When they tried to go to class, the Little Rock Nine were confronted with a police barricade and an angry mob of racists. Finally, the federal government had to intervene. The state National Guard was dismissed and Dwight Eisenhower deployed 1,200 members of the Army to escort those students to class. So on September 23rd, today, back in the day, 1957, the Little Rock Nine finally made it through a mob of rioting racists to get to their first class. We'll start with your quick six headlines. We'll have an interview with Sam Pardue from Indo Windows on his clean practice business plan, keeping his team safe during COVID-19. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The nation reporting some local news. Over the summer, Department of Homeland Security and other federal agencies may in fact have tapped protesters' phones. According to former intelligence officers, a federal task force worked to intercept the phone calls of Portland protesters. That was around the same time that federal officers were seen abducting protesters in unmarked vehicles. Despite the public backlash of their activities, the Department of Homeland Security have kept their operations largely secret. In late July, news broke the Department of Homeland Security was gathering intelligence on Portland journalists. The House and the Senate demanded information on those efforts, but DHS, Department of Homeland Security, has yet to provide all of those documents. The task force that may have tapped protester phones also included the Justice Department, headed by William Barr. According to anonymous sources, that task force used cell phone cloning to intercept calls. Their goal was to gather intelligence on activities related to Antifa, including the establishment of a hierarchy. In response to the backlash over their activities in Portland, DHS fired the head of their intelligence wing, Brian Murphy. Later, Murphy filed a whistleblower complaint where he alleged his firing was retaliation. He also said he was pushed to block reports about white supremacy and Russian interference. Your daily dose of coronavirus data. On Tuesday, the health authority reported 328 new cases and three new deaths. The spike in new cases comes a week after. Since the fires, people have been more forced into indoor spaces, and health officials predicted that cases might spike in the coming days as a result. 
We're now up to 31,313 confirmed cases. 532 people have been confirmed killed by COVID-19. Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas, and Marion counties continue to contribute the most new cases. Multnomah County, 60 new cases. Washington County, 42. Marion, 38. And Clackamas County reported 31 new cases. This spike has come as the United States has reached 200,000 deaths related to COVID-19. The current president of the United States, instead of saying all lives matter, made the point that most of those people were old people. It's also caused a delay in the reopening of some Oregon schools, which had recently met benchmarks for reopening. Some K-3 schools in Lane County had planned to reopen yesterday, but those plans fell apart when cases jumped above that 5% threshold for test positivity. And in spooky coronavirus news, the CDC released new guidelines for having a safer Halloween. On Monday, the CDC provided a list of low- and high-risk Halloween activities. Traditional trick-or-treating, going door-to-door, that's considered high-risk. Eating glass, getting into hard drugs, going inside strangers' homes without a chaperone, also high-risk activities not listed by the CDC. Instead, the CDC suggests that folks leave individually wrapped candy at the end of their driveway. They also list outdoor space, such as pumpkin patches, as moderately risky. They advise against hay and tractor rides. Many of Oregon's corn mazes and pumpkin patches have remained open. Also safe, staying home and watching spooky movies. The Real Police Accountability Campaign got its official start yesterday. Joanne Hardesty putting the new police oversight measure to voters and emphasizing it is the first of its kind. Independent accountability boards tend to have to be imposed by court order, and on the ballot this year will be a chance for voters to install such a review board. It's ballot measure 26-217. The new system would get rid of the current review board, replace it with a new oversight committee. The budget of up to 5% of the total police budget would allow the board to hire civilian investigators to work police misconduct cases. The board itself would also be able to issue discipline for officers that engage in misconduct. Joanne Hardesty in the Press of Ale said it is the sort of police oversight she has been fighting for for more than 30 years, but there's a level of support she has never seen before. Here's her quote. For the first time, we have the political and community will to totally transform how policing happens in Portland. It's not an anti-police ballot measure. We want to ensure the community and the police can have a fair and equitable oversight. Survey says most Oregon renters are in distress. According to a survey conducted this month by PSU, Portland State University, and the Community Alliance of Tenants, more than a third of the 460 renters surveyed have failed to pay full rent during the pandemic and can't afford to pay what they still owe. The moratorium on evictions expires September 30th, and the results of that survey were released as part of an effort to lobby for more protections for renters. Governor Brown has said she doesn't expect to call a special session until after the election. Any extension of that moratorium would have to come from the governor. Three Oregon businesses are threatening to sue the state over the coronavirus restrictions. The businesses include a salon in Lynn County, a bowling alley in Coos County, and the Wilsonville Family Fund Center. Who's leading the fund? John DiLorenzo, former chief counsel for the Oregon Republican Party. He's representing the businesses. He's gained a reputation for suing the state and has filed a slew of anti-government lawsuits, including a $10 million suit against Portland for appropriation of water funds. This year, he won a $1 billion lawsuit against the state when courts agreed that Oregon had not maximized its timber harvest. His latest lawsuit alludes to the goodwill that businesses have lost as a result of the COVID restrictions. According to Oregon law, the state must provide just compensation for any property taken during an emergency. DiLorenzo is arguing when Oregon shut down businesses, they took the property. This, by the way, is a very controversial view of what a taking is, as distinct from like bulldozing a house so you can build a road. In this case, that property is goodwill. Like 
customer bases and brand recognition. So far, the governor's office has not commented on the suit, nor have they responded to the demand for a compensation plan. Meanwhile, the federal relief that surviving businesses have relied upon is starting to run out. In March, Congress passed the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, which business owners have used to make payroll during the recession. That program expired in August, and the loans that businesses received through that program are drying up. And Congress has yet to pass a new round of relief. The U.S. Senate sure wants to hustle on a Supreme Court appointment, though. Several Oregon schools are reporting hate speech and intrusions in their online classes. Students and teachers are trying to adapt to the daunting world of virtual classes. Wilson High School, at least it's still named that for now, has reported disruptions in several online courses when unidentified individuals use racist and anti-Semitic language during lessons. North Clackamas has also reported anonymous students using racist language to disrupt school activities. In Lake Oswego, 30 anonymous users accessed a drama class and shouted racial slurs. According to parents at Clackamas High School, their school used Google Meet to arrange some events, and the links for that meeting were accessible to anyone. School officials have acknowledged the need to step up security. Much of today's virtual learning is being done on public platforms such as Zoom and Google. Important Public Schools says teachers are being provided with more training on how to run safe and secure classrooms online. Meanwhile, kids, why aren't you out drag racing like people were a few months ago? Why you got to be shouting racial slurs? Some good news. The Oregon wildfires are showing little growth. A little bit cooler, wetter weather has helped slow down the record-setting fires across the state. As of yesterday, no wildfire grew more than 300 acres. The Beachy Fire, devastating fire in southern Clackamas County, grew only 39 acres, had reached 38% containment, thanks to the continued efforts of firefighters. Firefighters, though, do expect to keep containing the blaze until Halloween. The Riverside Fire near Estacada grew only 140 acres. It's now 26% contained, just a little over a quarter. The Lion's Head Fire, that's east of the Beachy Fire, grew 269 acres. That's just 13% contained. And a few other major fires, including Archie Creek and the Holiday Farm Fire, didn't grow at all. Officials do acknowledge, though, that warm, windy weather could return in the coming weeks, bringing some smoldering fires back to life. While conditions have significantly improved, including air quality, firefighters remain on high alert, as should all of us. And for people who missed this the first time, let me shout out again to Mike Seelig, who offered this information. Your house might have a duct system that's bringing wildfire smoke inside your house. If you're in an area that's still impacted by smoke, and if your duct system was built after 1991 and you have a forced air furnace system, it is likely it has a fresh air supply duct. During normal times, that duct brings in needed fresh air, but if there's a lot of smoke outside, that fresh air duct is bringing in wildfire smoke. If you need to close that duct, Look for a 6 to 8 inch diameter metal duct that runs from an exterior wall to the large rectangular return air duct that connects with your furnace. The duct will have a damper in it somewhere near the furnace. A manual damper will have a lever you can turn to close off the air supply. A motorized damper will have a small metal motor housing with wires running to it. Since motorized dampers vary, it's best to contact your HVAC company for advice on how to close it. I want to thank again the whole crew at KXRW and Mike Seelig especially and all the people are helping us get through this time. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Today we have an interview with Sam Pardue from Indo Windows. Sam discusses their systematic approach to COVID-19 safety and how you can access it too. The novel coronavirus was nearly impossible to prepare for. When the virus first came to Oregon, the response lagged as the state scrambled for funding to prevent the spread. Sam Pardue from Indo Windows, a company that specializes in window inserts that reduce noise and heat loss, began working on a fix for his business as soon as news hit of the first confirmed case in Oregon. Now, Pardue's 
comprehensive plan titled Clean Practice is free and available for any business to use. Thanks for joining us this morning, Sam. Good morning, Emily. It's great to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us. So excited to hear about your last few months. It hasn't been easy on anyone, and it sounds like you have a ray of light to share with us. Let's talk. Well, we think so, yeah. So let's talk first about what happened February 28th when Oregon had its first confirmed case. A lot of folks didn't know what to do with themselves. Many panicked. Many waited until someone else told them to panic. What made you come up with a plan so quickly? Well, I had been following this new virus that was circulating in China because my partner is a doctor of Chinese medicine and acupuncturist, and she alerted me that there was this new epidemic spreading in China. And so for whatever reason, I just started reading news reports about it really early, and I knew that it was coming. I mean, it was very obvious if you just looked at the basic metrics about the disease, like how easily it was transmitted, how long you know, people were sick with it before they showed symptoms, it seemed very clear that it was coming to the United States. And once it hit the United States, it would spread just like it was spreading in other countries. Mm. So I had that mindset going into it. It was a surprise that the Portland metro area was one of the first three cities in the United States to actually have what's called community spread, where it's spreading and they don't know who is spreading it in in your community. Mm. So, but when that news hit, I was kind of already ready And uh, I went home that weekend and I said, gosh, you know, we're a manufacturing company and it's incredibly important for us to keep our team safe. (laughs) So how are we going to do that? And we, I just did all the research I could about COVID-19 and I came up with a plan and I decided it was really important to present the plan to the team on Monday morning. So that Monday morning, I came into the office. I called an all-company meeting. And I said, hey, everybody, this is coming and it's going to happen here. And we need to prepare and we need to start right away. And, and that's when we prepared our, and presented a plan to our team. Wow. So, again, what was the time frame between the when you started to write the plan and delivering it to the employees for feedback? Well, I guess uh, I worked on it Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then on Monday morning, first thing, I presented the plan to them. Uh, That's like right after COVID-19 was announced to be circulating in the Portland metro area. So it was pretty much the, you know, pretty much the next business. Wow. That seems super fast. (laughs) So... (laughs) So tell us, I, this is based, this clean practice uh, plan that you created is is based on something called Lean, a business methodology that reduces wasted time and increases efficiency. Is that correct? That's right. So I think a lot of people know that a lot of Japanese manufacturing companies are really efficient. And Toyota pioneered what's called lean manufacturing um, back in the post-war era in the 1950s. They were actually taught uh, these a lot of these principles by a, uh, a consultant from the United States named Mr. Deming. And, uh, but the, the principles of lean manufacturing are, are so powerful that they've spread throughout manufacturing companies all over the United States. And so as a small manufacturing company, we're, a, we're what's called a mass custom manufacturing business. Every single window insert we make is a unique shape and size. It has to fit its window frame precisely. 
And in order to do that at large volumes, we've had to develop and use a lot of lean manufacturing skills. They help us stay organized. They help us maintain really good quality. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't know that we were going to use lean when we started out. We just we, we had a plan, and we began implementing it. As, and the really important principle here is as we began implementing it, we got everybody on the team involved. And as we got everybody on the team involved, we just started relying on the business techniques that we had been using for years to become a really efficient and effective manufacturer. And it wasn't until I, I looked in the rearview mirror after a couple of weeks and I, I kind of told our production manager, I was like, Josh, wow, the team is doing a great job implementing this plan I came up with and they're actually building on it. And, and we started talking about it. We realized that we were using, you know, the reason why we were doing well is we were just relying on the skills that we had as a business. Mm-hmm. And many of those skills were from lean manufacturing. And, and, and that's, I think, why the plan has been really effective is because lean is a bunch of principles that are often used in manufacturing but can really be transported outside of manufacturing to help you get your team mobilized around something and get great outcomes. Hmm. That's really interesting. So what are some of the components of your plan? How did you need to change your work based on the the surgence of COVID? Well, uh, at the time, the CDC's guidance was very much oriented towards surfaces. Right, mm-hmm. and this, this 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 epidemic has evolved, and our understanding of COVID nineteen has changed over time. Mm-hmm. But in those early days, the guidance was: you've got to be very careful about surfaces. You got to wash your hands all the time, right? So, um, to respond to that guidance, we we used a system of dividing up our factory into zones, and then we appointed zone captains to be kind of in charge of their zone. And these were organized around kind of teams, you know, it's kind of a space and it's the people that work inside of that space. And we have about a, we have a 20,000 square foot facility in North Portland where we make the window inserts. And there's a technique in, in lean called a Gemba walk. Gemba, it's a Japanese word. It means space. And uh, it's all about you know, having the senior leaders of the organization walk through the space with the team that works in that space and to observe what's happening. And in the manufacturing uh, realm, you might be looking for inventory piling up because that might indicate there's a bottleneck in your manufacturing line. But we were not looking for inefficiencies. We were organizing into teams and then we were walking through our spaces and we were looking for COVID-19 transmission vectors. Mm. And we would then use another technique from Lean, which is called visual factory or visual management. And we'd put a brightly colored dot on any space, any, any, any surface that more than one hand would touch in a 72 hour period. And each, each team had its own color. <laughs> so you knew when you were entering the red zone because there would be red dots. Or you knew you'd be entering the green zone because there'd be green dots. And what this allowed us to do is to have a very easily trainable and easily followable cleaning schedule, right? And um, that was great. You know, it actually was a really simple solution that was almost free. 
that and the key thing is it got members of the team really involved in identifying the problems and coming up with the solution. And fundamental to lean manufacturing is the idea that you need to get people at every level of your organization involved in finding the solution and then in implementing them. And when you do that, you get the best response. You get the best mm -hmm. outcomes. And I, I certainly think that was true at Indo because um, what we saw was that, you know, once we had put up all these dots, it was really easy to train people on the cleaning schedule. And we didn't outsource our cleaning. We didn't, we're not a big fancy, you know, corporation. And, and so we decided we would um, all participate in the cleaning. And so those dots uh, appeared all over the factory. It, it really um, helped us never miss a cleaning spot. And we used it as the, uh, a way to get people involved in creating the solution and implementing it. And I think that's a really powerful way to respond to a crisis. That's really interesting. Now, it sounds like you already had a culture of lean. Is that correct? We did. Yeah. But I'm going to say the, you know, I, the reason why we Clean Practice started, and there's a website, cleanpractice.org, where people can go and they can download the 10 principles of clean practice and they can mm. download their own COVID-19 template, you know, response plan. Uh, so what we, we did have a lean culture and we drew on that culture to create this, but, but the principles are easy for anybody to implement. And I think that's something that might be really a powerful message for your audience to hear is that organizations of all kinds can implement clean practice in their workspaces. And the benefits are not only going to be a safer team, the, uh, the other big benefit is your team's morale is going to be much better than it is going to be otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that's even if you do all the best, you know, cleaning principles and everything like that or safety principles, by getting your team involved and kind of identifying the problems and implementing the solution, their morale is going to improve. So clean practice came out of lean. It came out of the manufacturing sector, but it's appropriate for organizations of all kinds. We have had a huge variety of businesses, over 500 organizations have downloaded the templates, the free templates that we're, we're making available on that website. And it's been, I just saw a, a yoga studio in Dublin, Ireland, just downloaded the templates for wow. practice. Right? And because in the manufacturing world, there's always a safety committee. Mm -hmm. And manufacturing companies also not only have lean kind of often built in, they also, you know, they're required to have a safety committee. And so they already had a mechanism to rely on to kind of go, okay, you know, COVID-19 is new. How do we, you know, how do we do this? A lot of non-manufacturing companies don't have a safety committee. They don't really have a way to, they don't have these skills that they can rely on to immediately come up with a, a good response. And so um, what we're trying to do is share some great practices that will help all, all kinds of organizations to respond effectively to the challenge of COVID-19. And along the way, you can learn some really cool lean principles that will help your company, your organization's culture become stronger through this crisis. 
what are your recommendations for how to create a culture of engagement? One of the things that I clearly heard in your plan and how it was implemented is that the entire team was engaged. How do you, mm-hmm. uh, how do you create a culture of engagement when someone might feel like you know, cleaning isn't their job or they disagree right. with the process? Right. Well, I think, you know, um, there are, you're right, there's a lot of variation in the, in the cultures that are out there in different types of organizations have different starting points. Mm-hmm. And you need to adapt. If you're going to try to, you know, use clean practice, you need to adapt it to your culture and your organization. Um, but I think a great place to start is to do a gimbal walk. Right. And it's a very simple process. You can say, hey, team, um, we've learned some new things about COVID-19. Uh, we want to share with you the very latest uh, information that's been made available on the threat of this disease and how it's spread and what the symptoms are. And then we want to take, you know, based on this information, we want to take a walk through our space together. And we just want to first uh, identify where are the riskiest places in our workspace. And I think everybody's going to be interested in that because if, if you're asking them to come into that workspace, right, because you, you're the type of business where you can't just send everybody home to work remotely. Like you may be a manufacturing company, you may be a restaurant, you may be a retailer, you just can't, you can't do it from home, right? Mm. So you're asking your team to come in. Well, why not involve them in identifying the risky areas? Identify the problems, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, you know, at the minimum, you're, you're involving them and you're giving them permission to speak up and to participate in the conversation. And once they identify the problems, they're involved, right? They're saying, hey, you know what? This is an area of our business uh, that's, you know, uh, that we need to, to deal with, um, I don't know what to do, but once you start asking, you know, once you start raising the questions, then you can start finding solutions. And often you can draw people into next the solution finding. Mm. It's like, okay, you're right. You know, uh, this is an area where we often crowd together. We have to figure out a way to spread ourselves apart. Maybe we need a second break table for our break room so there's more room to sit. Or maybe your concern is about airflow. And it's like, gosh, you know, we could really increase the airflow in this room if we always had this back door cracked open instead of closed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some simple solutions that will reduce the risk. And as you get your team involved, um, you're going to find out that um, they are not only going to feel better about being at your workplace, but they're also going to maintain the safety practices much better because they've got ownership in your response. Mm. As a manufacturing company, were your employees um, and your team already wearing some sort of mask or safety equipment? Some of them were, but not all of them. Okay. Uh, so we did have uh, masks being worn by some of the team that cuts uh, some of the material because that creates dust. Mm-hmm. But much of our work um, is quite clean. And so uh, not everybody, but everybody wears masks now. And how has that transition gone? It's gone fine. Um, And I think the reason why it's gone well is because 
from the beginning, you know, we laid the groundwork of team involvement and and we've been sharing information with the team. And so we have had, you know, little resistance. Now, there have been times when, you know, even a company like Indo, which originated something, you know, called clean practice and is sharing it with other organizations, that doesn't mean our work is over. Um, we need to check in and make sure that things are going well because one thing I noticed when I was uh, walking through the space is that when our team members went on break, first thing they do is whip their masks off and they'd start talking to each other in the break room. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was kind of where people were concentrating. And also that the airflow wasn't so good in that break room. And we needed, you know, even though we started this practice, we needed to update our practice and we needed to update our response. So uh, we had a conversation about the mask wearing. Uh, we reemphasized that it's important to wear your masks until you've got your food ready and then you sit down and that's reducing your exposure. Uh, and we figured out a way to create much better ventilation to that break room by running the exhaust fan that's in the kitchen and, and literally taking the door off the hinges <laughs> so it couldn't be closed by accident, the door that was in the back. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, there is resistance to mask wearing out there, but I think if you can get your team involved in solution making, then you're going to find that there's probably going to be less resistance. Wow. This is so interesting. Sam, where can folks find more information about clean practice again? Check out cleanpractice.org. It has, oh, we have a webinar, a free webinar is this Thursday, the 24th at, uh, it is at 11 a.m. Pacific time. You can register for the webinar on at cleanpractice.org. Plus, there are templates available for download for free. And uh, if you have any questions, just email Sam at cleanpractice.org. I'd be happy to engage with you because, you know, I found it very powerful to try to respond to this crisis in a positive way and to um, – it's, it's kind of kept me from getting down in doom and gloom, mm -hmm. uh, which is so hard. We have so many crises going on in this country. And I think if you can move forward to the crisis with positive energy, you're going to be better off. And clean practice is one way you can engage and do that. And I'll, I'll tell you this. I mean, if you're an organizational leader out there and you don't have to be the CEO or the executive director, I think you'll find that if you if you can if you can really have a positive proactive response to crisis, what you'll find is not the team morale is better, but your their execution of your core mission is going to improve. The team at Endo is doing the best work of their entire history right now in the midst of this crisis when they had a, you know when they've had challenges coming from every direction, and. Part of that reason, I think, is we had a really proactive response. So there's a great return on the time you'll put in. You don't have to put in any money, uh, but it can really benefit your organization to take positive action. Excellent. Sam Perdue, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been my pleasure. I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Again, that's Sam Pardue from Indo Windows, and you can find out more at cleanpractice.org. Thanks to Sam for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.